It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Perhaps you remember reading the opening lines of the famous novel by Charles Dickens titled A Tale of Two Cities. A story that was set in the cities of London and Paris during the time of the French Revolution. And this morning, I don't have for you a tale of two cities, but I do have for you a tale of two kingdoms. And it's important that we understand what these two kingdoms are all about. And it is vital that we understand which kingdom we are in. And I want us to see this from Colossians chapter 1. So turn there with me, Colossians chapter 1, as we continue our journey through this New Testament book, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 9, but we're going to focus our attention this morning on verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 1, let's begin in verse 9. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, living, inspired, inerrant word. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, we looked at those verses last week. And Paul goes on to write in verse 13, For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We are grateful, Lord, for your presence here. We know that you're here with us, and we ask that you would manifest that presence. Help us to feel you in this place. And I pray that you would take your word and apply it to our lives by your spirit, that we might be changed. I pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted up because... Jesus is our only hope, and, and Jesus said if he is lifted up, he will draw men to himself. And so help us by your grace to lift up the strong and precious name of Jesus. Do a mighty, mighty work in our midst. Lord, may we leave today knowing we have encountered the living God. And we'll thank you for that grace. Establish my footsteps today in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This book of Colossians is in reality a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae. Now we know that the church in Colossae was founded by a man named Epaphras. And around A.D. 61 or 62, Epaphras had journeyed to Rome where Paul was imprisoned to report to him uh, about this church. And he told Paul some things that were encouraging about this church, and he shared some concerns with Paul about this church. So in response to this report, Paul writes this letter 
to commend the good things that he had heard and to address the concerns that he had. And that's what this letter is all about. Now, starting in verse 9, Paul begins to pray for the believers in Colossae. And he prays specifically for them. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they could live in a, a manner that was pleasing to the Lord. They could please God in all respects. And as he prays for them, he begins to talk about what God had done for them. As a matter of fact, in verse 12, he talks about how the Father had qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He had made them kingdom saints. And as he talks about what God had done for them, it's almost as if Paul gets carried away because he begins to talk about or continues to talk about the blessings of salvation, what it means to be a believer. And in verses 13 and 14, he begins to talk about two different kingdoms. We see a, a tale of two kingdoms unfold in these verses. And so we're going to answer this question today. What has God done for those that know Christ? What does it mean to be a believer? What are the blessings of salvation? Well, from these two verses that we read, there are at least four answers to those questions. Number one, God has rescued us. God has rescued us. What does it mean to be saved? It means that God has rescued us. Look in verse 13. Paul writes, For he has rescued rescued us from the domain of darkness. That word rescue is an interesting word. And to understand that idea of being rescued, you need to understand your spiritual condition before you met Christ. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says that before we were saved, before we encountered Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It, weren't, it wasn't that we were just bad off. It was that we were dead, which speaks of inability. We were far from God, separated from God, headed to hell, listen, and dead, which means we were unable to do anything about it. We were lost and could not save ourselves. So our only hope was that another comes to our rescue. And, and Paul says, he rescued us. Before we met Christ, we were spiritually dead and unable to do anything about it. And our only hope was for God to graciously, watch this, intervene and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, if you're lost, if you don't know Jesus, you are far from God, you're headed to an eternity of separation from God, and listen, you can't save yourself. There, there's no way you can save yourself. You've got to have the help of another. You've got to have a rescue from God for your life. And so what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that God has rescued us. He intervened in our life to snatch us from one kingdom and save our souls. In 1973, two British sailors by the name of Roger Chapman and Roger Mallinson were laying cable at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. They were laying telephone cable in a submarine. And at the end of this uh, work day, they... Uh, went back to the surface of the ocean, and they were being brought on board uh, the ship that was tending to them. And during that uh, procedure, a hatch came loose where the uh, equipment room was, and the hatch began to fill up with water. And it added a ton of weight to this submarine so that it broke free and began to plunge to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. It took them about 30 seconds, but they fell 
1,575 feet and crashed into the bottom of the ocean. They were there at the bottom of the ocean without power, a limited supply of oxygen, and there was nothing they could do. They were there at the bottom of the ocean perishing and they could not do anything about it. But up on the surface, a massive rescue operation commenced. Ships were brought in from different nations. Different submarines were deployed to go down and try to figure out a way to rescue these two men. And eventually, over a period of days, they figured out a way to get the right kind of harnesses and ropes and attach them to the submarine. And they were able to pull the submarine to the surface. When they got to the surface, they opened the hatch for the men to come out. And when they were rescued, they had 12 minutes of oxygen left before they perished. That, that predicament, that situation, and the subsequent rescue, it's, it's a beautiful picture of our spiritual lives. Before we met Christ, we were far from God. And we were unable to do anything about it. And listen, time was ticking down. You see, all of us have a limited amount of time on this earth. We don't have forever. And if we are far from God, if we are lost in our sins, we are headed for eternity of separation, and time is ticking down, just like the men on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And just like those men, our only hope is for another to come to our rescue. And that's what God did for us. You see, God came and began to work in our lives. The Bible says in John 6, 44, that He draws us, he draws us to himself. He shows us our need for a Savior. He allows us to hear the gospel. He convicts us of our sin. And when we respond to that, we are saved. We are rescued. We are snatched from the domain of darkness. So what has God done for those that know Christ? God has rescued us. Secondly, God has transferred us. Look what it says in verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This word transfer is an interesting word. It was used by the Jewish historian named Josephus when he wrote of the Assyrian king named Tiglath-Pileser. Tiglath-Pileser came into Israel and conquered that area, took a bunch of the Israelites into slavery, and took them back to Assyria. And the word that that Josephus used was the word here, transferred. He took them from one domain, one kingdom, Israel, took them back to Assyria. And that's the same thing that happens to us when we meet Christ. When we meet Christ, we are taken out of one kingdom and transferred or placed in another kingdom. Now, to understand how awesome that is, you need to understand what God transferred us from and what God transferred us to. So what did God transfer us from? He transferred us from the authority of darkness. Look what it says there in verse 13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. That word domain is literally the word in the Greek language, authority. In other words, before you met Christ, you were under the rule and the authority of Satan. Satan was calling the shots over your life. And he is cruel. And he is evil. And he hates you. And he wanted to destroy your life. He wanted you to stay separated from God. He wanted you to die in that condition. And he wanted you to go to hell. That's what Satan's all about. 
And before we meet Christ, we are in that domain of darkness. We are under the authority of Satan himself. And Satan's all about destruction. So what did God transfer us from? He snatched us from the the domain, the authority of darkness, the domain of Satan himself. But what did God transfer us to? Well, look what he says there. He transferred us uh, to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he put us in another kingdom. He took us from one kingdom, put us in another kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. Now I want to talk to you just for a moment about the phrase beloved son. I love how Paul describes Jesus here. He's the beloved son of the father. This phrase speaks of at least three different things. First of all, the phrase beloved son speaks of the divine nature of Jesus. If Jesus is God's son, it means that Jesus has the same fundamental nature as the Father. And the Father is divine, so Jesus the Son is divine. Jesus is fully man. He took on human flesh when he came to this earth 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is fully God. And I want you to understand that both are necessary for him to be our Savior. You see, if Jesus Christ we're not fully man, he cannot justly die in our place. We're humans, right? For us to have our penalty paid, a human had to die in our place. So Jesus took on human flesh to pay the penalty for our sins. But only someone who is divine could pay the debt that we owe. You see, when we sin against God, we sin against an infinitely holy God. You know that? God's holiness has no boundaries. He's infinite. So when we sin against him, you know what we deserve? We deserve infinite punishment. Have you ever wondered why hell is forever? Why it goes on and on and on? It's because we'll never, ever pay that infinite punishment that we deserve. Because we've sinned against an infinitely holy God. Our only hope was for someone who is infinite himself to come and pay that debt. That's why it's so important we understand that Jesus is not only fully man, he is fully God and could pay that debt. He's the beloved son of his father. Over in Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says that in past times God spoke through prophets in many different ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And Hebrews says that the son is the exact representation of the nature of the Father. Just like the Father is God, Jesus the Son is God, fully God, the one who died for our sins. And so the phrase beloved Son speaks of the divine nature of Jesus. Secondly, the phrase beloved Son, listen, reminds us of God's love for us. Do you love your children? I love my, I'm crazy about my kids, I really am. And I know you are too. Or your grandkids. I mean, we, we love our children. And we think about the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. It helps us to wrap our minds around the sacrifice of the cross. Do you remember what John 3.16 said? For God so loved the world that he gave who? His only Son. If you ever question God's love for you, just remember that God gave His Son to die in your place. I mean, that should settle the question, right? God loves you. His beloved Son is the one He gave to die in our place. And so this phrase, beloved Son, reminds us of how much God loves us. But third, the phrase, beloved Son, 
points to the obedience and goodness of Jesus. Remember, he took us from the domain of darkness and put us in the kingdom of his beloved son, his good, righteous, wonderful son. Over in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, when he came up out of the water, the Bible says the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, anointing him, empowering him for his earthly ministry. And at that same time, a voice spoke from heaven. You remember what the voice said? It was the Father. This is my, same phrase, beloved Son, listen, in whom I am well pleased. The phrase beloved Son speaks to the fact that the Father was pleased by the obedience of Jesus. You remember Matthew 17, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain. Remember that story? They get on the mountain. He's transfigured before them. His garments are sparkling white. His face shines like the sun. His glory is unveiled to those three disciples. And all of a sudden, they see that he's standing there talking with Elijah and Moses. Wow. And Peter thinks, well, this is really cool. And he says, Jesus, let us make three tabernacles, i.e., one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And as soon as he said those words, a cloud overshadowed the mountain, and the Father spoke again. And he said, this is my beloved son. Same phrase, my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, don't miss it. It's not about Moses, and it's not about Elijah. It's about Jesus, my beloved son. He was pleased by the obedience and righteousness of his son. So think about this. When you were saved, you were put into the kingdom of someone who is infinitely good and righteous. Satan hates your guts. Satan is a destroyer, but Jesus loves you. And as the old song says, no one will ever care for you like Jesus. So it's a good thing to know that you're in his kingdom now. That he's the one calling the shots over your life. That he's your Lord. That he's your master. That he cares for you. So God rescued us, and he transferred us. He put us in a new kingdom. You see, salvation is the tale of two kingdoms. Taken from one kingdom, the domain of darkness, put into the kingdom of the beloved Son of the Father, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you in here have experienced job transfers. You're working one job relating to a set of people. You had a boss. Then you were transferred to another job, another set of people, a new boss. That's exactly what happens to us spiritually when we're saved. God transfers us to a brand new kingdom, a kingdom of light and goodness and righteousness, the kingdom of his son. Let me show you a third thing. What does it mean to be saved, Wade? What are the, the blessings of salvation? God rescued us, God transferred us, but God has also redeemed us. Look what the Bible says in verse 13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, his Son, in whom we have redemption. Now the word redemption means complete release based upon the payment of a price. Complete release or complete freedom based upon the payment of a price. I like what the New Testament scholar Douglas Moo writes. Redemption taps into a, new, a key New Testament image of the effects of Jesus' death on those who belong to him. The language would have brought to mind in the first century 
the transaction by which a slave paid a price to secure his or her release from slavery. That's what redemption is. It's when someone has been set free, been released, experiences freedom, but for them to experience that, a price had to be paid. That's what redemption means. Now, if we're redeemed, if we are free, it means that someone paid a price. Now, here's the question. Who paid the price for our freedom, and what was the price? Well, look there in your notes. Jesus gave his life as the ransom price. Turn to Ephesians, just a couple books before Colossians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Ephesians chapter 1. Look in verse 7. Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul writes, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption, freedom, through His blood. His blood, His sacrificial death on the cross was the price that was paid so you and I could be free. Isn't that awesome? Quite a price. Jesus gave His own life to set you free. So, that's the price, His life. But what is our freedom about? Jesus gave us a lifestyle of glorious freedom. And I think a lot of folks don't understand what freedom in Christ is all about. So let me just share with you a couple things concerning our freedom in Christ. First of all, we are free from the penalty of sin so we can rest. Everybody say rest. We can rest. When you were saved by Jesus, He gave you the gift of salvation. And you received it as a gift. And because you've received that gift, you know you don't have to work for your salvation. You can rest in the finished work of Christ. See, here's the deal. Just like those two men on the bottom of the ocean floor, you can't save yourself. But all the other world religions say, you've got to do all these things to make yourself acceptable to God. But you can't save yourself. You need some help. Jesus did it all. So salvation is not achieving. Salvation is receiving the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And when you've done that, you can rest in the fact that it's all been taken care of. You're saved now. You're His. That'll never change. You can rest in what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's freedom, amen? But secondly, we are free from the power of sin so we can change. We're free from the penalty of sin so we can rest, but we're also free from the power of sin so we can change. A lot of people, particularly in the Bible Belt, think of salvation as fire insurance. Okay, I'm saved, so I'm not going to hell. And that's all they think about when they think about being saved. But there's so much more to it. There's freedom involved. Now... Because you've been forgiven and the Holy Spirit indwells you now. Listen, you can say no to sin and yes to God. You can change by the grace and power of God working in your life. Isn't that, isn't that glorious? You're not, the Bible says sin no longer has dominion over you. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're free to live for the glory of God. You can change. You can go in a new direction through the power of God in your life. That's freedom. You have the freedom now. The capacity, the wherewithal 
to live a life that honors the Lord. Now let me show you just kind of a neat grammatical insight. If you look there in verse 13, he says, he rescued us. That's an aorist tense verb. And then he says, he transferred us. That's an aorist tense verb. Now the aorist tense was used to speak of a past completed action. So when you met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, at that moment you were rescued and transferred. That happened for me when I was nine years old. Now I was nine, I met Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and at the moment I was saved, the moment of conversion, the moment I was born again, God rescued me, God put me in a brand new kingdom. Amen? That's past tense. But in verse 14, he uses a different tense. Look what he says. He says, in whom, in Christ, we have. That verb is present tense. We have redemption. So freedom is not something in our past is something we get to experience presently every day. Every day we get to live in the glory of freedom. We get to experience the blessings of freedom. The price has been paid. We've been set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. To illustrate this, think about someone that's been set free from prison. They've been set free. The, their debt to society has been paid. and They've been out of prison for six months. Freedom is not past tense for them. I mean, there was a time when they were released from prison, but they're experiencing that freedom every day. They're living and enjoying the implications of that freedom every day. And it is the same with those that know Jesus. We experience a daily, life-changing freedom to serve and worship the one true God. And so what has God done for us? He's rescued us. He's transferred us. He's redeemed us he set us free but fourth and last god has forgiven us look in verse 14 of colossians 1 it says in christ in his beloved son we have redemption the forgiveness of sins so what does it mean to be saved it means that your sins have been forgiven based upon the finished work of jesus the cross and the resurrection we enjoy complete final forgiveness of sins. Now, occasionally, I've heard folks interviewed, you know, maybe a movie star or famous athlete, and you know, they're talking to Oprah or Barbara Walters or someone like that, and they say something like this, I don't have any regrets. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it the same way. And every time I hear that, I think, how foolish. Can I just tell you this morning as your pastor, I have some regrets in my life. There's some things in my life that I'm ashamed of, that I've done in my past. There have been times I have rebelled against God, disobeyed Him, gone my own direction. Times I've let other people down, times I've let God down. And, and if I could do it all over again, I, I promise you, I would go address those issues. I'd want to make it right. I'd want to avoid some of the pitfalls I fell into as I grew up. And the mistakes I've made in the past. I, I promise you, I, I'd want things to be different. How about you? I mean, again, you've heard me say this before, but who in this room would not hang their head in shame if a replay of their life was shown on the screen for everyone to watch? We've all got things in our past, but listen, here's the deal. We can't do anything about it. We can't go back. We don't get a do-over. We don't get to replay it. There's nothing we can do about our past which makes forgiveness so glorious. We can't change it, but in Christ it can be forgiven. 
those sins can be washed away. And the Bible says that God takes our sins and puts them in a sea of forgetfulness. He holds them against us no longer. He, he no longer remembers them. Because in Christ, they've been paid for. They've been washed away by His blood. And that is glorious. You can't change your past, but you can be forgiven of your past. And it gets even better. When you encounter Jesus as your Lord and Savior, not only does He forgive you for your past, He forgives you for the things you're going to do wrong. We're going to blow it this week. And guess what? Jesus died for those sins too. They've been forgiven by Christ. Forgiveness is a wonderful, wonderful reality. One we don't deserve, but one we can enjoy and glory in. Now, if all that's true, if God has forgiveness of our sins in Christ, if you've experienced that by embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there are at least four implications for your life. Number one, and these are important, forgiveness ensures our relationship with God. Isaiah 59.2 says that sin separates us from God. Did you know that? That's what sin does. God is holy, perfectly holy, infinitely holy. And when we sin against Him, that sin is like a barrier of impurity between us and a holy God. We can never know Him or have a relationship with Him because our sin separates us from Him. The only way we can be a child of God, the only way we can have a relationship with Him is, the, is if that barrier of impurity is taken away. That sin is taken away. And there's only one way for that sin to be taken away, through the blood of Jesus. He's the only way to have your sin washed away. And so, when we meet Christ, He takes away our sin. He takes away that barrier, that wall between us and God, so that we can now enjoy a relationship with God. The Bible says when we meet Christ, we become children of God. Isn't that wonderful? So wait, how long does that relationship last? Well, forever. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from Him. Once we have a relationship with God, we'll always have a relationship with God. And that relationship is made possible by forgiveness. The wall of impurity between you and a holy God has been washed away, taken away by Jesus. Secondly, forgiveness enables our fellowship with God. Our intimacy with God, if you will. Turn to Hebrews 10 with me very quickly. I want to show you just a really encouraging passage. New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10. Look in verse 15. I'm going to quote here from the book of Jeremiah to talk about the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. Writer of Hebrews says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, at, and at, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, if you've been forgiven, there needs to be no more offering because the offering of the cross is all you need to wash away your sins completely forever. Now look at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, don't miss this, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You know those verses say? Because our sins have been forgiven, we can go into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. Listen, anytime we want to and stay as long as we want to. Because of forgiveness, listen to me, you can climb up into the Father's lap anytime you want to. And stay there as long as you want to. Enjoying that fellowship, that intimacy with Him. Question, why don't we do it? Why don't we pray? Why don't we spend time in the Holy of Holies now that it's available? Forgiveness is a reality. Our sins have been washed away, and it enables our fellowship, our closeness with God. Third, forgiveness motivates our obedience to God. Turn to Psalm 130 with me. Psalm 130, verse 4. I'm going to show you an important verse. Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist writes... But there is forgiveness with you, praise the Lord for that, that you may be feared. Notice that. There's forgiveness, and the outcome of forgiveness is, the outcome of being forgiven is, you fear God, you respect Him, you want to live for Him. I like what Warren Wearsby writes, forgiveness is not an excuse for sin, rather it is an encouragement for obedience. See, some people would hear my sermon today and say, you know what, if, that, if all that's true, God forgives all your sins, past, present, future. When you meet Jesus, then you can just do whatever you want to do. You can just live it up. It's forgiven. Just, man, go, just go do your thing. Just do what you want to do. Listen to me. That's not how a forgiven person thinks. Someone that has really experienced the forgiveness of God wants to honor God with their life. They, they are motivated to serve Him and fear Him and love Him and live in a way that is worthy of the Lord. Someone that says, well, I'm just going to live it up because I'm forgiven, they've never really experienced forgiveness. They don't understand how wonderful forgiveness truly is. So if you think you can just abuse the grace of God and do your own thing because you're forgiven, you don't understand forgiveness. True forgiveness motivates, inspires reverence and respect and desire for obedience toward God. And then fourth, it's so important. Some of you in this room are struggling with this fourth thing. Forgiveness empowers us to forgive others. Turn back to Colossians with me. Colossians chapter 3. We'll get to this chapter in a few months. But look in Colossians chapter 3 with me. Verse, verse 12. Paul writes... So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. In other words, if you've been forgiven greatly, you should be willing to extend forgiveness to others. Now, some of you in this room, undoubtedly, are holding on to some unforgiveness harboring some malice, maybe a, a grudge, and you're having a hard time forgiving someone that has offended you or mistreated you. Listen to me. If you can't forgive, 
it's a sure indicator that you don't understand forgiveness. Because when you understand that God has forgiven you of all your stuff, all your sin, all your rebellion, all your iniquity, how could you withhold it from someone else? Someone that holds on to grudges does not understand the forgiveness of God. They don't get it. Because when you get the forgiveness of God, it will give you the desire to extend it to others. It empowers us to forgive others. So what does it mean to be saved, Wade? What does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to be born again? What are the blessings of salvation? God has rescued us. He has transferred us. He has redeemed us. And He has forgiven us. And here's the neat thing. I want to show you one more little insight in the text. Back in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul, I believe, is sharing his personal testimony. Because earlier in this passage, when he's talking to the Colossians and he's praying for them, he uses the word you. I'm praying for you, for your mind to be filled up with the knowledge of God's will. But then in verses 13 and 14, he uses the word us. In verse 14, he uses the phrase, we have redemption. Notice that. I love what, I love what William Hendrickson writes. Paul's heart was in his writing. He never wrote in the abstract when he discussed the great blessings which believers have in Christ. He was ever deeply conscious of the fact that upon him, too, though completely unworthy, the Father had bestowed these favors. Hence, it is not surprising that deeply moved by what he is writing, he changes the wording from you to us. Undoubtedly, Paul was deeply moved as he wrote these words. Listen because Paul had experienced what he's writing about here. You see, on the road to Damascus, Paul was under the authority and rule of the kingdom of darkness. But on that road, God rescued him, transferred him, redeemed him, and forgave him. Listen, and Paul never got over it. And my question for you today is this. Have you gotten over it? Have you gotten over what it means to be saved? Are you no longer amazed by grace? Are you bored with the glories of salvation as outlined for us in a book like Colossians? Does talk of Jesus and His redeeming love make you yawn? Have you gotten over what it means to be saved? Paul never got over it. And may we be like Paul, constantly rehearsing and rejoicing in God's rescue, God's transfer, God's redemption, and God's forgiveness.